Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Mike Natale. This is Tom Lorenzo. We're the hosts of You're Missing Out, which you know because uh, you're listening to it right now. You may have noticed this has a different title, uh, and this is a little different, and certainly we're talking a little more casually than we normally do. Uh, that's because we realized that the holidays are uh, a weird time for podcasts and podcast listeners because about half the people uh, who listen to podcasts don't listen to the holidays because they want to spend time with family, and the other half uh desperately need podcasts so they can get a little break from their family so if you're in that latter group uh this is for you uh we are using this christmas eve winter solstice pre kwanzaa episode uh to uh give you guys some kind of content even if we're not putting out a new episode uh so for this one uh we are putting up an episode of the old show that Tom and I used to host together, uh, which was under the name You're Missing Out as well. Uh, The original premise of our show is that Tom and I would pick a film for each other that that person hadn't seen. Uh, I guess that wording's weird. We used to have better wording for this, right? Uh, It was that, you know, Tom would pick a film for me that I hadn't seen. I would pick a film for him that he hadn't seen. And then we would get together and we would uh, talk about it and whether we each thought that people were missing out if they hadn't seen it. Um... It was definitely a very different format, so you'd half the runtime would be to one movie, half the runtime to the other. It could sometimes get uh, tense or combative, or sometimes we could have nothing to say at all. Um, but this one is probably, of the traditional format episodes that we did, this one about Midnight Run and Rocky Horror Picture Show is my favorite of them. I think it's the one that uh, got the closest to what I had hoped the show or what, what I envisioned the show as in my head. I, I, I think, I don't know about you, Tom, um, because you and I both uh, re-listened to this uh, prior to, to talking today, but I think this was, this was what we would, we had hoped that the show would be in most cases, right? Yeah. Um, it is. I mean, it's hard judging it now because I mean, it's it was been two almost, years, right? It's, I, pretty because this was in the brooklyn apartment so i left that apartment december of 2020 so i'm pretty sure we're now over two years i think this was recorded in the summer of 2020 yeah i mean we both uh, both 2018 and um just uh but, but also just it's hard to judge just because of how different the format is and how used to the current format i am to just hear like a I don't know, like a high school debate club version of a movie discussion where yeah. this one isn't as combative or wide in uh, opinions as some of the other ones could be. Because there were ones where we both had different opinions, I... but it, it wasn't as um, combative as some of them could be. But um, like there will are probably ones... never hear those again. <laughs> There's some no. of them that will just stay in a vault. But um, uh, like yeah. like this one, there's moments mainly in the Rocky Horror section where we disagree about some stuff, yeah. but it's more of a case of, um, I don't know, those dis- the things that I felt were negatives, you didn't feel were negatives, but you understood why I saw them as negatives. And I was like, yeah, well, I see why you see them as positives, but, you know, it didn't work for me. Um, it It's just... Uh, it's a time, you know, it's time more pale. Um, yeah. It's just weird going back to it with the new format and everything. And uh, 
is wait is Rocky Horror in the National? It is. Industry? It is. This will be so people so, <laughs> get a get a years in advance preview of where you at least in 2018 stood on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think I'll be very curious to see if when we inevitably get to it many many seasons from now, um, where your stance is on that uh, and, and whether it has changed because of course uh, time changes everything. Um, but I yeah this was this was this was probably my favorite because I think this was. You know, when we went into the new show, uh, we were prepping it. I stressed the idea of us watching movies from the vantage point of these have value, you know? Yeah. And I think that in a perfect world, us doing that old show, the idea was kind of like, well, we'll go into a movie with the idea of, oh, well, if Tom is picking it, then I know it must have some value because Tom wouldn't pick a movie that he thought was bad and, and vice versa. And I think that a lot of the times we kind of missed that. A lot of the times we kind of came in, uh, whether we were in a bad mood when we watched the movie that day or whatever, like we weren't, it was instead a matter of, like you said, a, a high school debate club talking about movies. Um, um, you know, it's that it's the time warp thing about this episode, which is, um, I don't know if this would be the last episode or whatever, or it's close to the last episode before just, a string of never-ending bullshit descended upon my life, which is, um, what yeah, you went through I, a bad patch not that long after this, so because because I'm still in the apartment, so I didn't break up with my fiance, I didn't get fired from my job, oh, and wow. I didn't have to move back home. You're 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 just putting it all out there at the intro of this one. Oh, what the fuck? I don't care. I'm better now. <laughs> um, it's fans are the listeners I, are getting the inside scoop. But I think it's, you know, this is the beginning of the end of what the show was, because after all of that, and I think the Phil episode was the last time we ever had this for like, where it could be good and we would both come into it in good faith, because after that, it got really rough for me and I would just come into episodes to record with you and just really just have no patience for anything and just be fucking froggy and just wanting to fight about shit. And I take full credit. I, you know, I, I take full blame for ruining what the old <laughs> show used to be. I, it, it's, it's, it, it's what happened. I know, I know it to be true. Um, so it's weird going back to like when it was good with this episode and the Thanksgiving one yeah. you guys heard a few weeks ago. Um, I didn't always rewatch the movies I picked for you and yeah. you could, you, you would always be, there are episodes where you could kind of tell that, but I think one of the things that always was, was that fueled some of my anger later in the run and did, which we don't have to worry about here is that there was a case of, ah, oh, Mike's making me watch this fucking thing where it's just like, no, this is the list of movies. Yeah. And nobody's making me do it. It's not like, it's like, no, this is like a list of culturally important movies that I volunteered to take. There's no surprise here. It's like, I know what I'm going to watch. There's no uh, fucking Mike or this fucking person made me watch this or Phil made me watch Babe or whatever. Or like, you know, Sierra made me watch this movie. It's just, no, we're going in knowing to an extent what, this thing is and i think it leads to a better discussion because there's no i don't know there's no feeling of a gotcha yeah well i mean that was that was never 
I, I don't think that was ever the intent of the old show, and I think that this this episode no. shows what it was, what it, what the intent usually was. Um, no, but I just mean gotcha, not in the sense of like I'm tr- we're trying to troll each other, yeah. but just the sense of like maybe we're not in the mood to watch yeah. this certain thing, or uh, I don't know. I'm just you know I got into a fight with my girlfriend, or work was annoying last night, or this thing, and I'm just annoyed, and now I have to watch this goddamn thing that's not even like. In the National Film Registry, it's like this fucking thing. Well, I think it was also a thing of we kind of, uh, you know, the old show was an opinion show, as a lot of movie podcasts are. And you could get away with coming in and having an opinion. And that was it. Like, you know, that you could get away with coming in and going, yeah, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And and it was stupid and it was bad. And we both did that uh, many a time. And I think that, you know, the new show that we're doing now, uh, we had this conversation like an opinion isn't good enough. You know, no. you can't just come in and be like, well, fuck Citizen Kane. Like, you can't do that. Um, but this was definitely one of the better ones. Uh, probably, like I said, my favorite. Um, and I'm excited for people to listen to it. Uh, it's weird that we introduce uh, our little Christmas Eve special talking about the darkest period in one of our lives. <laughs> Merry, I happy mean, holidays, everybody. I uh, mean, that's yeah. that's that's what Shane Black's all, movies are all about, man. You hit the darkness, the darkest part of your soul, reflecting that, uh, on the new on the year. Yeah. Reflect, well, it's the new year. He, he, he said it. It's about reflecting on the year that, that came before you, all the things you went through, reflecting, and then looking towards the bright future that can be held if you reach out and grab it. And that's what we're doing here. And... These two movies are, at least with Jack Walsh, yeah. kind of that. And with Rocky Horror Picture Show, I mean, you know, there's a lot of lights and a lot of... It's very colorful, which is fitting for the holiday yeah. season. No, I mean, they're, they're re- they, they are two films that are both about um, people going on a journey of self-discovery, I think. And, and so I think that's... Yeah, I mean, again, I, I thoroughly enjoyed both conversations we had on this one and I'm, I'm happy for folks to hear it so here is an episode of uh, the original you're missing out uh we're talking uh, midnight run and the rocky hard picture show My pick this week is Midnight Run, a 1988 buddy cop comedy directed by Martin Brest, starring Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin, and Yafet Kodo. It's a movie about, uh, Robert De Niro is a bail bondsman out to get Charles Grodin, a white-collar criminal who has defrauded the mob, and all sorts of hilarious hijinks ensue. Alright, so, uh, my pick was Midnight Run from Mike this week. Uh, let's get into it, Mike. You saw Midnight Run. What's up? So... The weird thing is, I have seen the, f- I think the first and last Martin Brest movies, at least of the significant films, because I'd seen Beverly Hills Cop, mm-hmm. and I've seen Gigli, and nothing in between. Yeah, uh, I've seen parts of Scent of a Woman enough to go no, uh, but I hadn't seen Midnight Run. I didn't even know about Midnight Run until uh, when we were in college. We were freshmen in college, and you were really into Empire Magazine at the time, mm-hmm. and. Empire Magazine had put out a list of the 500 greatest movies. Also, uh, sidebar, 
Uh, magazines are when they put <laughs> articles that you would see online, but there weren't little buttons at the bottom to click through 20 pages for 500 words. So here's the thing, guys. When we, when Tom and I were growing up, these things called magazines existed. They were and printed we were, on paper. And we wanted to write for them because you could make a living writing for them. Uh, and those all fell apart, and that's why we do this for free on the internet. And much like how we destroyed the forest by pillaging it for all of its paper goods... Uh, we've ran out of paper, and we're also uh, just running out of money on the internet, so it's all just bad. This is this is what they're going to play when they're like, why did Mike end it all? Oh, yeah, okay, good, good, good. Um, so I, you would show me on Empire Magazine, they had the 500 movies of all time, a uh, greatest movies of all time. And for me, like freshman in film school, a lot of the stuff was stuff that I was familiar with, stuff I hadn't seen, you know, Seventh Seal, things like that. And this was one of the ones on there, and I thought, well, this is really strange. It's a, you know, it's a Robert De Niro, like, comedy... Why is this here? I've never heard of it. I knew nothing about it. Uh, I don't know why I never got around to it other than the fact that I kind of assumed, well, maybe it's a British magazine. It's a thing that caught on there but isn't terribly well-received here. I don't know. Um, And the weird thing was watching this now, seeing it for the first time, it felt like a movie I had seen every year, like on Thanksgiving or something like that. You know, I, I texted you and I said, we try not to talk about the movies before, but I texted you to say like, this feels like something that I would have an uncle who would put it on every year at a family gathering. Yeah, it's great just, movie. It's, it is a great movie. It's just one of those movies that, like, I even at the time, like, it was an immediate success. Everyone just felt like, oh, this is, like, this is just something we're going to watch all the time. Well, I think it feels, the closest I can equate it to, and, and this is going to sound maybe dumb because I know it's not as, well, well I guess it is as well remembered in, in some sense. Uh, the first, closest I can relate to was The Artist. Insofar as when I saw The Artist in the theater for the first time, like, new movie, The Artist... I felt like, oh, I know this movie. It felt like I was watching a movie that I grew up with, but for the first time. Mm-hmm. Midnight Run has the exact same feel. Like, even though I was watching it on a Blu-ray, it felt like a VHS somehow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There, that that kind of that kind of classic warmth to it. That said, uh, I will admit, I started this movie out uh, not not on board. Like, I, it starts out, and it starts out, and you just feel like it's going to be, you know, like just from the opening scenes, you get this sense of, like, oh, it's going to be a, to a, to some degree, a tough guy movie, except the joke is going to be, you're trying to figure out what it is, you know, you're trying to find your footing with it, and they introduce Pantoliano and, and De Niro and all that, and you're kind of going, okay, is this whole movie going to be, like, a a mismatched pairing dynamic of... Well, De Niro's like the tough guy, real man, kind of, you know, blue-collar guy, and then, you know, Groden's going to be the uptight, because they say, like, white-collar criminal, you know, the uptight guy, and, you know, maybe they don't get along because one wants him to clip his fingernails or some shit like that. And when they first introduce Groden, I kind of wonder if that's what it's going to be. And it's it's a weird movie insofar as I didn't laugh a whole lot, per se. Yeah. But then by the end, I realized that's not what this movie was, and that's not what this movie was trying to be, even if forces within the film are trying to make that happen. Well, it's it's different than... uh, Because this is the first time De Niro ever made a comedy. Yeah. Uh, This is very different than what everyone thinks is the first time De Niro made a comedy, which was Analyze This, which was very like, we want you to... Was Analyze This before Meet the Parents? 
Yes, that okay. was 99. Meet the uh, Parents was 2000. I've literally never seen Meet the Parents. That's a fact. It's fine. It's, I mean, it's a, it's, a t- it's a movie if you see on TV, you're not going to be mad. It's all I, about... think, I, think, I think a good quarter of our friendship now is me texting you about movies that were popular in the early 2000s that I missed and just going, is it worth it? This is playing very differently and kind of, as much as we can bemoan the 80s a lot, and, and we do. I mean, there's uh-huh. a lot of stuff yeah. from the 80s that we don't particularly like because it keeps getting shoved down our goddamn throats. Yeah. But this is the kind of movie from the 80s that I do wish there was more of, which was a movie that is, it's a well-told, content, charming movie that's not really like, it's kind of like Beverly Hills Cop, funny enough, I mean, it's from the same guy, but it's, like, Beverly Hills Cop, for the most part, isn't a movie where you go, like, belly laughing, and it's not complete, like, an action, like, oh my god, these action scenes are great, it's... A best of both worlds kind of charming. You just enjoyed the ride. Except, here's the thing. I would say that the issue that it has, if I can, and I'm not trying to just give one criticism out the gate, but it does do one thing that is very 80s, and it's almost like, because you talk about the warmth and that kind of, you know, down. So that's, and that's what we love about Cheers. Yeah. For as much as we shit talk the 80s, I, at very least, my favorite. It's my favorite sitcom. My, my favorite sitcom, possibly my favorite television program, um, is Cheers. And that is obviously from the 80s, but I, it's so warm, it's so honest, it's so sincere. And it doesn't do a lot of 80s shit. This does insofar as uh, I turned around to somebody and I went, oh, yeah. Remember how in the 80s when they would do when they would make comedies, they realized, oh, we don't always have to do jokes. We can just play a wacky saxophone riff while a car drives and people will laugh. Like, there's so many moments in the movie that just kind of, like, points, I think when they blow up the helicopter, shit like that, that just, like, that in any other movie, like, it fucking shoots at a helicopter and it explodes. And in, like, take out the score, take out everything, and you're like, this is a fucking action scene. But you just hear, like, a... And you're like, it's... Okay, there are so many movies of the 80s that just consistently employed saxophone players for either walking montages or driving montages and it's it's the one thing that I look at with this it's so weird because it's it's almost as though when you watch it it is a moving and heartfelt story that the studio kind of occasionally went oh do this and I don't know if that's per se what it is but like it's it spends it the window dressing on the movie is such uh, uh, and it is the equivalent of like that very 80s kind of zany comedy that you don't really realize until you get toward the end that it's actually a very sincere story about moving on with your life yeah and that both their stories because it doesn't that's kind of what what impressed me about it is that for 95% of that movie like, well, the first half I'm going, I don't know if this is going to work. Because until De Niro and Groden get together and settle into their groove, mm-hmm. I found it kind of tedious. But I think that's only because this is a movie that definitely works better on repeat viewings. Yeah, definitely. Than it does on the initial. I well, can tell that right away. Well, just because there's a lot of, like, a lot of the, a lot of humor that is built in from the beginning that you don't know is, like, the setup of a joke later in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I also would just say, like, that like the music kind of going in that way kind of just is sort of reflexive reflective of the characters themselves of how 
at least with Jack, Jack the De Niro character, for as much as he's like a stressed out, screaming like maniac for the most part, when he's in the shit, he's just sort of like, yeah, I got this. So when he's like, he blows up a helicopter, it's just like, yeah. I think, well, here's the thing. I think the weird thing about it, though, in those moments, and that's one of the things that, that I, I will say kind of throws me about it a bit, is that there are scenes in it where you're watching it from the end, like, where De Niro does something extreme, like mm-hmm. blows up the helicopter or something like that, and you have Groden reacting, like, whoa, like, this is insane. But those scenes don't land as well. Uh, a great scene is Groden during the counterfeit scene. When yeah. you need money and he goes into the bar and, oh, wow, the bills, check the bills. The reason that scene plays to me a lot funnier than, like, De Niro shooting a helicopter mm-hmm. is that De Niro is our character for the movie. Yeah. We've been following De Niro from the beginning. And we don't know shit about Groden. That's kind of why the yeah. counterfeit scene works well, is we do not know a goddamn thing about Groden. And when we meet him, we think he's just a stuffed shirt. Yeah. So scenes of De Niro reacting to Groden being surprised, or De Niro being surprised by Groden, mm-hmm. really, really land because we're with him on that. Yeah. Whereas the scenes that'll be like Groden reacting to the the wacky, you know, antics of De Niro, like the you know the action hero antics of De Niro, don't land as well because he's not our viewpoint. It's the same reason why this movie, to me, at several times plays better than Beverly Hills Cop because Beverly Hills Cop Axel Foley is our guy we're following him around so when he does something extreme and you've got the you know stiff cops reacting like I can't believe he did that well we can because we've been following Axel for the movie so it's really just in that case it's just the fun of watching some guy be you know well I think you know well I think I think those scenes land well because it helps to sell th- at the end when Groden sort of like okay like I I know who you are I know you're a good guy here's a coat full of money I get and I get that and I get, we're gonna talk about that and scene I think for maybe, and I think you know, a year and I think uh, the to kind of bring up a big part of why this movie's so successful and why it's got that heart and the charm want the tiny there's a tiny detail in that counterfeit scene is they don't take all the money yeah. They just take what they need, and the guy's like, "Oh, what about these?" And they just go, "Oh no, those twenties are fine. We just need." But you know, just but these like, three. so, uh, but to give you a counterpoint to you know, De Niro with the helicopter, there is a scene that plays well in it. Not to dissect comedy too much, but there is a scene that plays well, which is De Niro's on the phone with uh, with um, oh my god, Pentiliano. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, you know, you better do this. You better, or I'm just gonna shoot this guy and leave him in a ditch." And no. Groden and Groden like looks terrified, and then De Niro turns and does just, like classic just, De Niro hedging. No. No, 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 and that. But the reason that works to me is the fact that the joke of that is not De Niro did something crazy and then Groden reacts. The joke of that is, oh, Groden thinks something that De Niro wouldn't do and we know he wouldn't do. Yeah. I So that's what, I guess those are the moments, that, and those moments are not, if I may, saxophone moments. Yeah. I'm doing air quotes that, but like, that's, I think that's my thing is, is 80s comedies and Beverly Hills Cop does it a lot. And a, and a lot of 80s comedies to follow do it a lot, which yeah. is saxophone moments of a character does something absurd or does something extreme, and the movie just kind of plays a saxophone to go, can you believe they did this? And it's like, I mean, yeah. I, what, we do didn't. you think that's because of the Blues Brothers? I was about to bring up the Blues Brothers, yes. I absolutely because that was 1980. Yes. And for as much as we think of Blues Brothers as like a m- musical, yeah. it's a road 
it's, car yeah. chase action movie. It's a car movie, but that's the thing. It's a car movie, and that is Blues Brothers is the only movie that I think uh, stars two of the great comedians of our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, is riddled with kind of joke goofy moments and is wildly miscategorized as comedy. It's the it weirdest goddamn Blues movie Brothers. In the world. Blues Brothers is only a comedy in this in the like old dramatist sense of anything that's not a tragedy is a comedy. Like it's there's it's there's, not... there's no like the the we're fucking off on track here, but the 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 jokes, quote unquote jokes in the movie are not jokes. No. They're just things that happen yeah. that are funny, but where you go, is it funny? This is just so weird that I can't help but laugh. It kind of feels like if David Lynch made a car movie. Yeah. It's 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 very much like, It's like David Lynch's vanishing point. Well, the weird thing is cuz you you look at it and there's I mean, just, it's a movie that like 20 minutes in just straight up says, "There's a god, he's going to help these guys, so everything they do, it's, they're going to succeed." But not only that, they are assholes and they are assholes who uh benefit they're assholes who benefit from all their stupidity and all their hijinks. Yeah. It's almost like if you just told Groucho Marx write a movie about how you see the world. <laughs> And it's just you know it's it's dark out and we're wearing shades you know let's roll it's just it's just well, weird it, antics that go unchecked by reality. Well, it also just helps again to tie it back to this movie. Yeah. What helps that movie so much is they are assholes. They're doing crazy shit, but at the end of the day, there is their motivation of we're trying to save an orphanage. Yeah, so, and, and, and and which goes back to this as much as they can get into some crazy hijinks and how the great runner of De Niro screaming. Marvin, look out! And just punching the, the other bounty hunter in the face. It's like, yeah, he's fuck. He's like throwing this guy into a horrible situation. He's an asshole, but 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 you know what? This the other reason I would relate to Blues Brothers is much like Blues Brothers. This is a movie that is a comedy that I watch, and I will never, other than maybe the counterfeit scene, I will never think of it in comedic terms. I'm I, always going to think of the heart and my the story. And the I characters. Think the moment that'll that always makes me laugh so much. I'll tie it's two moments because they're tied together. It's Groden freaking out on the plane, and then at the end, you can fly. Yeah, I didn't think it was necessary information at the time. <laughs> it's, well, that's, but that's the thing. That's the thing is once the movie, and I think on repeat viewings, I'm going to enjoy it more. But at, at the time watching it, I'm watching this going, oh, this sucks because it's like, yeah, so he's. De Niro, you know, he's the the tough guy. He's going to have to take the stiff neck. And then, like, once we get the flip of, oh, no, De Niro's not necessarily a bounty hunter. He's a good family man yeah. who got screwed over and is just trying to make ends meet and just wants his family back. And Groden is not the innocent that you think he is. Yeah. Once that flip happens, I'm like, this is great, and I could watch this for years. And, one, and I think one of the key things about De Niro's character is is that even though he suffered this this loss, he, he was beaten by the mob and was run out of town, and he's down on his luck, he's still a good guy. Yeah. That they, he, ne- he doesn't succumb to his situation. He's a may- maybe a bit more sarcastic than he may have been when he was a cop. He's obviously a little grungier, but he's still ultimately a good guy who can believes we, can in I sidebar for a moment? the law. Sure, can sidebar. I sidebar for a moment? Because we need to address the elephant in the room. Because you said De Niro is grungy in this, and I think... That might be why. We have to address the elephant in the room, which is this. Um, elephant trunk in his pants, am I for, right? For no explicable reason, I wish I could tell you, and I don't know whether it's just the color composition of this movie or what, because he has a... 
he has a color to him. I don't even know if it's a tan or a shade or whatever it is. And he, it's, it's something about it's that. It's the jacket. It's the hair. Like I have never. I would. I think been- it's all those things. But what I think might be the ultimate thing that helps is that he, he took this movie because he was like, I just did the Untouchables. I yeah. just want to do something that isn't fucking horrible and depressing and violent. Let me just have fun. And you can. He is loose. Well, here's what I will say, and this is my point that I want to bring For a man who has it, no personality and is a comedy black hole when he keeps showing up on Saturday Night Live um, or in, talk shows. In in any other movie, if you'd show me, like, Godfather 2 or you show me, like, any of the classic De Niro movies, I'd say De Niro's a great actor who basically looks like a fucking boxer. Like He's, he's either you know, too scrawny or too big. Yeah, he's like, he's not a good-looking man. And after this movie... He is not a good-looking man. Because he, like, almost immediately aged, like, ten years by the time Goodfellas he rolled goes, out two so, years so later. So here's the thing. He goes from being that guy you knew in high school who, like, maybe got girlfriends but was one of the friends in the group of popular dudes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, he was he was the Vinny off to the side who you're like, he's got a weird nose, but I guess. And then after this movie, he immediately becomes your Italian uncle. Yeah. Who's already divorced and is just never going to get his shit together. Yeah. But for this one movie, De Niro is handsome as hell. That is, he is insanely attractive in this film, and I don't understand it. Other than, like, I can't quite put my finger on why, but it's just, you look at him and you're like, shit, all right. I don't know if it's the jacket, the hair, I don't know what, but it is. I think it's, I think it's all of those elements, and just that he's in that, that right moment of time, because the next time he would be this light and this just goofy he's an old man yeah he's right at that point where he's still a viable sexual presence yeah and, yeah and then you got that coat you got the haircut and you know what he's coming is- right off of untouchables where yeah. he was fat again he he's look he's in the middle of losing weight so he's in that right perfect moment of he's at the pendulum swing right right at the bottom where he is very very fuckable if that is your thing. That is not my thing. He's uh, not Clint Eastwood or Bruce Springsteen, so that's not my thing. <laughs> but you know what? And I think it also helps the fact that he is paired up with somebody who is not a movie star and does not have movie star looks uh, in Charles Grodin. Because I know that when they were working on this, they were trying to come up with who's the right guy, and they were going to do, at some point, they were talking about Cher. So they could have a sexual dynamic. And at some point, they were talking about Robin Williams. And neither one of those would work because you would look at both of them and go, oh, these are superstars. Like, these are fucking stars. Yeah. Groden is completely indistinct. Which is, is weird because a... he was like a like a big star back in, like, the 70s and but, 80s. But, but, but not in, like, a way... But it, he, it's weird in that you forget that he was. Yeah. And even in this movie, which was kind of like the last hurrah for him as a star... Because after this, is the only big things he'd do after that is the Charles Grodin talk show and Beethoven. Mm. He was like a bit like he had the heartbreak kid, which and is he insane. Had a bunch of he was in Woody Allen movies. He at was, the end of the day, if you're gonna say like who is today's Charles Grodin, I would probably say somebody like Bradley Whitford. Probably you know? like Charles Grodin, and that's the thing. Charles Grodin has the indistinctness of a West Wing cast member, where you're like. Where you see them and you go, I know they're, I know that guy from something, but you don't really know. Yeah. Like how you, how I would venture to guess seven out of ten listeners, you know, right now probably couldn't tell us what Toby's real name was. Like you fucking, you can't. Don't tell me you can. Um, 
but it's weird, and I think that works because this is the only time, or one of the few times that I can look at a movie, especially with somebody as big as De Niro, and not see Robert De Niro. Yeah. Even in some of his best movies, even in Goodfellas, you're like, that's Robert De Niro. Well, He's yeah. playing a part, but you're like, that's fucking Robert De Niro. Um, in this, I guess it's the, it's the pairing with Grodin, it's his own look, and it's the way that the script works, that you really do... It's maybe like the, and it's also maybe the first time he's played a good guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the deer hunter. Okay, but that's he's still playing a broken man. Yeah, this is the first time where he's just, oh, this is like I'd get a drink with this guy. Yeah, because it's you know what the thing is, and that's part of why I would almost argue it's not a comedy. Yeah, is that it's it's way closer to Lethal Weapon than it is your traditional comedies, even action comedies like Beverly Hills Cop, things yeah. like that. So unless you're going to qualify Lethal Weapon as an a, as a comedy, then, you know, this. I don't think this is either. And that's not a knock on it. I think it's just... It's, it's also that, hard to say. I think, I think a big thing with why we're ha- finding it hard to call it a comedy, even though it is charming and there is... Yeah. Wait, where you go, oh yeah, that was funny, is a lot of comedies... I feel like most comedies, there are no... St- when you're watching these things and you do genuinely get invested of oh I don't want the Duke to get taken by the mob I want I want Jack Walsh to overcome like that, what these guys did that and I think that you also have and the that element. Dennis Farina brings Den, when Dennis Farina shows up you he there is no he commits no acts of violence it's a very kind of bloodless movie but you just go oh this guy is a this is a bad guy and I, I gotta be honest but like and I feel like, and this is not a disrespect to comedy films, but, you know, we're, while we're not guys who quote unquote study comedy, you know, I, I, I definitely I respect like comedy women. films. Yeah, we, um, we, we definitely uh, respect comedy films. The reason I guess I say that it's it classifying it as a comedy is is potentially harmful to it is that for me going in, I was so afraid that I was going to have nothing to talk about with this movie. Yeah, because. There's not much you can say. I mean, we did Duck Soup on this show. Yeah. And Duck Soup's a great movie, but after a while, you're kind of just like, this was funny, this was funny too. Like, these were all funny things. Um, is that nothing about how Midnight Run is sold to you, even in today's world, kind of suggests that it's going to have as much... It's going to be as much about its characters. Yeah. It doesn't do what a lot of comedies would do, which is, we're going for laughs, we're going for laughs, and then at one point, we're going to introduce, uh, you know, oh, uh you know he had a family that died or some shit like that you know like well a, it's it's kind of like a, a you know some of those comedies will do that you know we'll yeah. have like a moment of heart this like it doesn't do any big dramatic scenes really yeah there are points where de niro will reveal like oh this is what happened with me when i was a cop but they always just feel fluid it never feels like oh this is the moment it gets serious it's always maintains its tone it it's it feels almost like it was a movie written by a man who just died recently, William Goldman, of yeah. every single element is perfectly executed, perfectly placed to reveal the themes and the characters' motivations and who they are. So every time you watch it, new layers are revealed. And and you just... Fr- and so, like when you, you like you said, you started this movie, you go, oh, it's just another tough guy thing. Upon a rewatch, you just, you're going to be watching, oh, this is a, a broken man doing whatever he can... And- because a lot of and, comedies would do something where they would set up whatever your big emotional turn at the end is going to yeah. be. And despite this movie dropping a lot of information, it never telegraphs where it's going because if you had stopped that, if you'd come shown up 
and paused that movie right at the airport, like right when they arrest the mob boss or whatever, and you went, what do you want to happen Yeah. to be satisfied with the ending of this movie? I would say, oh, you should let him go. Yeah. And that's it. You know, you should let him go. Yeah. At n- no, you know, I would have never thought about like, oh, what if he gives him the watch? What if he gives him the, the money? Yeah. I wouldn't have thought about that because it, even though the watch is there, you know, the yeah. watch he got from his wife, yeah. and all, even though that's there, it's never given an emphatic emotional heft. Yeah. You understand it because of how De Niro delivers the lines. Like, you understand it because of the way that in that moment, that's the way he can say thank you. Yeah. Without, because, you know, it's... Neither one of the characters ever says why this matters. Yeah. You know? Like... Because you kind of watch it at first, and Grunge is like, here, it's money I held on to. It's a movie Take that trusts it. the audience. Yeah. And he's which like, is a lesser movie wouldn't do. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't... It, it doesn't adds... sacrifice the characters to get an emotion out of you, because yeah. I think a, 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 a great moment that doesn't, you know, cheat the characters is when the Duke gets taken by the mob, and Jack is just in that diner, and he's... And then uh, Alonzo Mosley shows up. Like, there's no moment beforehand where he's, like, crying or sad and, like, oh, I'm going to, like, end it all or I can't believe this happened. He's just, he's still Jack. He's still just rolling with the punches. And then when the opportunity arises, because he's a smart guy, which is another thing, these, your, your two main guys are capable characters, so there's no sense of, like, anything befalling them is, like, the movie cheating. Like, it it feels like a natural, like, push, ebb and flow within the narrative. That so, you never have a moment where it stops and you go, "Oh my God, we became such close yeah, exactly. friends." Exactly, I agree. And you, you don't even it works. So I mean, of course, I you know I'm looking for it, and you can see them kind of develop more of a chemistry. Yeah. But for the the entire movie, the narrative seems to be sustained on De Niro had a job to do, and yeah. he wants to finish the job. And it is not until that exchange at the end, you know, the watch, the money, that kind of thing, that you're like. Oh yeah, that's why this happened. Is that it's and it's not like De Niro became bitter and was like, "Oh, the world sucks." Yeah, it's that's the other thing I think is beautiful about it is that he's not cynical. Yeah, even after everything happened to him, you could have easily written that character as, "Well, everyone's bad." Yeah, you could have, and he could have just talked about his bitch of a wife and all. But instead, what it did is De Niro is a guy who was crystallized in the idea of my family. You know, my ex-wife, they are good. Yeah. These people are bad. You know, good, bad. Wife, good, mob people, bad. Yeah. This guy worked with the mob, he is bad. Like, that's it. And he's got this. That's his worldview. And Groden, he doesn't teach him lessons about life or anything like that, but just by his presence and by being a good man. Yeah. He wakes De Niro up to the idea of, there's more to the world out there. There's more out there than just the people I know are good and the people I know are bad. I need to... I can branch out. I can find a new life. Yeah. You know, that there's there's more people out there than the life I used to have. And I think that that's so beautiful. And, I, and it does it in a way that is so subtle compared to... I mean, look, there are movies... I'm not going to talk about a bunch of movies I haven't seen or anything like that. But there yeah. are plenty of movies 
that are well, well revered of like, oh, but then that moment, you know, like the Steve Martin figures out John Candy doesn't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving or some yeah. shit, like that kind of stuff. And then yeah, again, I'm hold not, on, this, this, not to, not talking to, about those moments of oh, like we need to those typical those 80s mo- movie moments. Yeah. I was thinking of a planes trains but just like those john hughes mo- movies in general of just we have to stop our movie to yeah. teach you a lesson full full disclosure i've not seen planes trains and automobiles it's fine. that's uh, like i've not seen it i know it's revered but it just it it from what i've heard of it and the way that i've seen it quoted and the scenes i've seen i'm just like yeah i feel like this is a movie that's not gonna land with me because i didn't watch it when i was the right age to watch it yeah. which is a lot of 80s movies and a lot of yeah. john hughes movies particularly like you mentioned this I thought would be one of those. Yeah. But instead I look at it and I'm like, I don't I, I think this actually works better now. It almost feels like a one last relic of seventies cinema in yeah. the eighties. It's uh, a, or it's you know, more so I would say it's it's a bridge. Yeah. It's a it, you know, it's a bridge even more so than Beverly Hills Cop, to the point where I would you would almost expect that this came first. Yeah. You would almost expect that this was the movie he made first. And then you move into the more 80s movie, which is Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> which, you know, which I would argue that, too, this works better than that for the simple yeah. fact that you don't... That, do you really have any sense of who Judge Reinhold's character is in Beverly Hills no. Cop? No, that is the Axel Foley show. Yeah. And this, I could totally understand if somebody... We're, we're not those people, clearly, yeah. but if somebody wanted to come in and argue that that movie is really all about Grodin... Yeah. And that De Niro is just a you know a vehicle to learn about him. I could see that being an argument somebody could make. Yeah, and and again, one of those one of the great little things of the movie and how it kind of leaves Grodin as this question mark over the whole thing is just when they're on the train and he's like trying to give him dietary advice. Is he doing it because he actually is trying to give advice, or is it just another thing of he's being an annoying prick? Trying yeah. to get a rise out of De Niro, and especially even then with the money, yeah. when he's like, "Here, you know, I held on to some of it," and immediately like, that changes everything because now you're going, "Well, I thought you took all this money, yeah, from the mob and you gave it to charity, yeah. Well, now you held on to some of it, <laughs> yeah. and now you have to ask the question of, okay, well, is this something? Is this an emotional moment because you held on to this last remnant of money and you decided rather than keep it for myself I'm going to give it to this man who needs it yeah in which case you have done a beautiful like sacrificial act because now it was all for nothing you put your life on the line yeah and you gave it the last bit or does he have more yeah is he lying but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day this is a story about one man and the most unlikely person changing his life yeah it's a and that's a it's a beautiful story in that regard yeah you know it's a it's a very you know once you understand and you need that ending to contextualize it but once you understand that that's what this movie is yeah it's a very moving story yeah and you know it's it i feel like on the rewatch not only am i going to like the film more, but it's also going to make me madder at the saxophone moments where I'm just like, can't you just let him have this? Can't two men just become friends and improve one another's lives? Must we? Must we be zany? And I think one of the... Something we haven't touched on, which I think is another one of the great things about the movie, how it ties into Daniel not being cynical or whatever, and it's one of the little magic tricks of the movie, is it kind of makes us think Yafet Kodo is our antagonist. Mm Mm-hmm. But they never give him any moments 
to actively dislike him. Yeah. So by the time they end up in the diner and he tells him, I can get you Serrano. And, and Mosley realizes, okay, this is not a bad guy. He's that Mosley's also a human being yeah. and that they can come together and sort of respect each other by the end. And that there's no real, it's just one of those, it's, it's a, like a magic trick of, cinema point of view of how just the way the movie's telling the story from the beginning you just assume he's a bad guy but by the end you get to know him more and see him interact that you just get to see that he's also a human being the only guy who's really just an out and out bad person is Farina yeah and and to be honest even like the side characters I'm gonna you know take us off down this road because I prepped for it uh, even the side characters of this film have their own kind of mystery to yeah. it I'm sure you know what I'm going to mention now. What are you going to mention? Philip Baker Hall is in this movie. Oh, yeah. For like five minutes. Yeah, just as his lawyer. Uh, yeah, as a character named Sidney. Yeah. Do you know what I'm about to mention? Hardy. That's exactly. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was so fascinated by this character, this five-minute Philip Baker Hall character of Sidney, that he writes a short film called Coffee and Cigarettes, gets Philip Baker Hall to be in it, and then uses Coffee and Cigarettes to make... His first feature, Heart Eight, yeah. which is the same character. Hmm. It's Sydney. I mean, he changes the spelling from like a I to a Y. Yeah. But that is, he made a, an unofficial spinoff of Midnight Run to be about Sydney in Vegas. And like, it's him, it's, it's Phil Baker Hall, it's John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Sam Jackson. Uh, you are gonna, you are gonna love this movie, by the <laughs> way. Uh, I feel like it might end up being an episode. Um, but it's it's that's one of those things that, at the time, again watching this movie the first time around and seeing like Philip Baker Hall for like five seconds, like why this? Yeah. Why this movie? Why this character? Like what the fuck? And then, getting to the end, I, I start to realize, like, oh, I can see how somebody could watch this again and again and want to get into who these characters are because, this is a really smartly written script, and a really smart world. That doesn't. Most of the time, you know, I hate movies that are like, oh, let's explore the criminal underworld. Yeah. You know, even like John Wick was fun as a novelty, you know, and as a, as a really clever action film. But like when they're like, what if we did an entire TV series about the hotel for assassins? No, we don't need this, guys. Don't. Let's not dig into this. Like, let's not. Let's not do this. This is one of those ones where I'm like, I want to know the story of every character in this. Well, because the- they're not. None of them are crime movie cliches well just to even one of my favorite moments in the movie is you got the two goombas that are dispatched to find the duke those two guys and when uh marvin calls him up and he's like oh i got the duke and he shows them the picture and he's like you're gonna give and then they just fucking then the one dude just punches him and the other guy's like why'd you do that and he goes he picks up the photo he's like i can tell where the hotel is in the picture because the, the hotel logo is in the background Let's go get them. And you just go, oh, these guys we've kind of been told are kind of doofuses the whole time aren't fucking complete idiots either. No, and th- that's the beauty of this is that it's, you know, and, and you, you'll, you know, I've talked about how much I don't like a lot of crime movies and you have, you know, brought that up quite a bit. And I think that this shows how you should be able to do that. And this is, this is what I like is that nobody in this film, except for your, the main mob boss. Yeah. Nobody in this film is defined by 
their noirish life of crime shit. Yeah. You know, it starts out making you think that's what it's going to be with De Niro or with Grodin, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like, this is a road movie. Yeah. And this whole movie, their relationship and the and all of that could work without any crime elements to it. I think this, this is a I think this is honestly a better plane trains and automobiles story than plane trains and automobiles because there's no cute saccharine moments of that's like if you, oh isn't this so sad learn a lesson change change the dynamic to a situation where I don't know fucking De Niro is his interpreter and he's a foreign dignitary yeah. you know any of that it still works because you know other than the mob boss like it works and the beauty of the fact that you talk about Yafikoto and De Niro and their relationship yeah. and like anybody any of the cops and their relationship with De Niro by the end, you realize that the only disdain they have from him is, you're better than this. Yeah. And that almost everybody in this movie looks at De Niro and like, you're better than this. Yeah. It's, there's a, there's so much heart to it. I really just, I, I respect the hell out of it. And to be honest, this is one of the few times I'm going to say it, I, I liked it so much more by the end than I did about halfway through. And I also have come to like it more in this conversation it's a than I did when we sat that down. has... I mean, it, that's this was the like thing. four that's stars for me until we when we started talking, and it's now it's a full five for me. I'm really because this, this is the thing. I mean, I saw it when I was much younger, but then growing up and having seen it on TV, and now like there's a great Shout Factory disc of it, and just watching it and rewatching it. It's a movie that just keeps revealing itself to you, and the the more you grow with it, the more it grows with you, and it's just such a it's such an unsung gem of the 80s and just of just yeah. honestly kind of cinema in general it's just one of those it's just one of the greats that it's <laughs> the only way it could have been better is if one of the guys who worked for the mob boss had to kidnap a mentally handicapped uh, teenager and fall in love with a lesbian yeah the best the the only story that is better is how a man who could sort of define cop comedies in the 80s with Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run would then go on to completely disappear up his own ass into a uh, wannabe Academy prestige with Scent of a Woman and the three-hour Meet Joe Black and then completely, completely fly into the goddamn sun with Geely. All right, we're not going to talk about Geely because obviously I'm going to save that for the Geely episode. Uh, the Geely guys, end of year special. I hope you guys know, I'm not joking, I'm making Tom watch Geely at some point. Uh, listen to the intro, incredibly good, remarkably bad, it's there. I think both of us talked, we didn't think we'd be talking no. that much about no, this no, no, movie no. when we started. I was very nervous about plugging it first for that reason. But. Uh, but yeah, when you think back on this movie, what's the first thing that's going to pop into your head? It's honestly, it's a, it's a toss-up between the counterfeit scene, but I, I think I have to say them at the phones, with the, with the exchange, with the money yeah. and all that, because that's just... The performances are so good. De Niro's so good in it. Like, it's just... It does that thing of two... It does that... Not to talk about a movie this year too much, but it does that Jackson Maine, you know, it's that Bradley Cooper, Sam Elliott in the car, like, yeah. it wasn't that, it was you. Like, that same thing, but even more subtle of, like, oh, these two guys don't want to say what they're thinking, but they're saying it. Yeah. I, so that's that's definitely going to be my moment. Uh, yeah, and I guess we kind of got it spoiled a little bit before about star rankings. Uh... Do you think people are missing out? 100%. Absolutely. Um, it is... This is a movie that does not have the acclaim or the cultural resonance that films like Beverly Hills Cop do or 48 Hours or any of those. 
a lot of those buddy cop movies, and to be honest, by uh, buddy comedies, I should say. But at in this particular moment, if you ask me right now, I would tell you that this is uh, better than any of the ones I just listed. I, th- I, I honestly, I, I think th- I will watch there are, this. There are elements of Forty Eight Hours that I kind of like a bit. I don't want to say more than four, than Midnight Run because those elements aren't in Midnight Run, but there's stuff in Forty Eight Hours that make me really like watching it. But I think Midnight Run's probably the best movie of its ilk of the 80s. Yeah. Uh, I it. think, honestly, of this kind of buddy comedy kind of thing, I think the only movie that I might like more than it, even though it's very different in many ways, is The Nice Guys. Fair, fair. I mean, yeah, but this is... Because it's this... not a road movie, and it's more, it, it's more, it leans more into the noir than this movie does, but I think this is like a movie that I just... But you know when what? I think I, about what it. I'll, I'm just here's what I'll say that I'll give this, and we'll we'll get off the topic. But I will I will give Midnight Run one thing over the Nice Guys, which is the Nice Guys still has like trailer moments, yeah, and uh, not necessarily saxophone moments, but trailer moments of like, okay, you're watching this movie, and Russell Crowe is a put togetherish cool guy, and Ryan Gosling is a buffoon. Well, he's got heart, but he's a buffoon. Whereas Midnight Run, the beautiful thing about that is neither character. I thought they might be, but neither character is a joke. Yeah. Either character is the straight man of their own movie. Yeah. It's not a comedic... There is no... It's not like it's a comedy guy and a straight man. It is, in fact... It it doesn't have the traditional dynamic of an Abbott and Costello or a Laurel and Hardy. What you have is you have two straight men who just rub each other the wrong way. Yeah. And that's where, if there's humor, if there's heart, that's where it comes from is the idea that these are both the stars of their own story. Yeah. You could just as easily tell that story with just, you know, from Groden's point of view, with him slipping away from the guy who's trying to arrest him. But instead, you know, it's... it's, Yeah, I think that's that's what puts it over so many, and even something like, to me, like, nice guess, is the fact that... <laughs> I guess that's part of it. It's not a comedy. Like, it's yeah. really not. It's... There's humor to be mined from it, but... It's not, you know, it never goes, or very rarely goes for laughs. I also, great. also just, it's not a cynical movie. No, not at all. And, and it's, it's so easy and to it's, be. And it's optimism isn't cheap the way a lot of other yeah. m- movies' optimism and no, endings kind of feel. Uh, yeah, so that's So, yes, if you haven't that run, you are missing out. Uh, next up, we are going to be talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. My pick this episode is The Rocky Horror Picture Show, a 1975 American musical comedy directed by Jim Sharman and starring Tim Curry, Susan Sarandon, and Barry Bostwick. A brassy musical spoof of 50 science fiction films and the moral panic within, the film's brash and unapologetically queer narrative made it the original cult hit and the most profitable midnight movie of all time. Now we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a film that I've wanted Tom to watch for a very long time. And I'm not the only one. Others Most... have tried. What? Others, Others have, have tried. tried. And part of it is that for a long time, uh, Tom has had some resistance to movies that are classics or are just important parts of cinema that he's kind of been like, well, I know I'm not going to like. You know, in that, that sense, back when you were in college, there were movies where you were just kind of like, I can do that. Yeah. And you've since kind of branched out, and sometimes you've been very surprised. Yeah. You know, I think if you had gone to you 10 years ago and said, hey, there's this movie called Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. You know, <laughs> things like that that I think, you know, you'd be, you might, might be surprised. 
So this is one I've always wanted to do. I wanted to wait for the right time for it. And I uh, figured right after the specials, we should do it. And part of the idea is when we introduced this show, uh, we, we decided the idea, the criteria was incredibly good, remarkably bad, or crucial to the history of cinema. So I want to be clear, I didn't pick this film because I'm like, oh, Tom's going to love it. And I didn't pick this film out of like some, oh, Tom's going to hate it. Like I told people we were doing this like, oh, I bet Tom's going to go off on our rant. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm doing this because it's a significant film. And for somebody who is a, a very big uh, purported genre guy, this is an, a, a hugely important part of the genre cinema and counterculture cinema in general. Like what, what one could call outsider cinema. Yeah. The stuff that... The Fangoria generation, this, I would argue, is as important as, almost as important as Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Night of the Living Dead, because this is the movie that proved and that box office receipts were not the only thing, and that these there were movies that could thrive even if the general public didn't get them. You know? Yeah. And now, of course, that's very common. Now it's it's very, very chic and, and, and totally understandable for people to just be like, oh, there's this hidden gem. How often do we talk about the you know the hidden gems? Either in sincerity or in, in ridicule of yeah. people kind of, you know... I mean, Shout Factory exists for this very reason. Yeah, there's a whole you know, there's a tick market now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very... I mean, you know, every, you can go to the Alamo any weekday night and they're running a movie that's like, here's a forgotten classic. Rocky Horror is the start of that. I mean, it's the midnight movie. It's the thing where people showed up and started having their own... I mean, people go... You, I'm sure you know people show these things. They yell lines at the screen. They have all kinds of routines and rituals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it... I mean, yes, and you had you have John Waters. You have things like that. But this really kind of encapsulated people who loved camp and people who loved that kind of... So that was why I picked all this just, just as the preface of this is why we're here and this is the context of the discussion. Yeah. Uh, so with that said, so now you have actually seen uh, Rocky Hard Picture Show. Uh, what was your What was your take on it? How do you How do you? Um, very much not my shit. Okay, it is not my thing. I didn't hate the experience of watching it. I just didn't much care for anything that was happening in it at any moment. Uh, even. If even though it had Tim Curry in it, even though it had a Blofeld in it, uh, it really just didn't do it for me. Okay. Um, I can see why it's important to a lot of people. Uh, I'm glad this it's this is the kind of movie that was the midnight movie, and not more the John Waters brand of oh I'm just gonna shove cum in your face and like yeah. oh isn't ain't I being ain't I a stinker that's that's what I think is so good. there's an earnestness to the movie that yeah. I can respect it's it's not my brand of tea but it's like alright like I get it it is I would argue it's it's it even though I mentioned Waters it has way less connection to John Waters than it does James Whale I mean in so far as like pretty much straight up tally, they, they make the connections obvious <laughs> like just in the beginning song with the fucking floating yeah. lips and then uh, I mean ending it with you know an RKO pr- picture yes. production yeah and obviously the you know the, the whole thing of him being about a Dr. Frankenstein Dr. Frankenstein making his master race which is fuck toy which is and, well 
by the way, and I've mentioned this before on the show, and I'm, I'm sure you remember I bring it up a lot. It delights me to no end. Adam Warlock. Uh, oh, I mean, that I even said, oh, this is this is gay Adam Warlock. The first appearance of Adam Warlock is three men creating the perfect man, and he is dressed exactly like Rocky. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Like the haircut and everything, like very clearly Richard O'Brien. And that's what's great about this, and, I, and what annoys me about the following it has to some degree. I look, Which I, even Tim Curry got sick of. Him. Yeah. Like, oh, I got fat... And schlubby because I couldn't stand these fucking people. Yeah, it's it's because the following around it is just the queerness of it, and I think that's great. And I, I, I the part of what makes that movie special is the fact that in fucking nineteen seventy five, that's what, a yeah. movie. I mean, and that's a huge year anyway. I mean, I, I I was watching it, and you know how sometimes you'll watch like Lebowski and be like, oh, Jeff Bridges should have gotten an Oscar this year, and we don't necessarily mean it per mm-hmm. se. But it's just like, well, let's take a look at what was there and what I wish had been up against it. But this was 1975. This was the year where the Best Picture nominees were Jaws, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, and Nashville. Yeah. So this is my year. I'm down for this year. Yeah. Um, but there is something about, I mean, this movie is boldly, boldly, Well, that's why boldly I say I respect queer. it and why I'm not, like, against it or anything. Why I can see why it's important because... And I it's, mean, it's it's very probably gay, even though and it still has to tone a little bit of its gayness down to not be like like we said, kind of John Waters explicit. Yeah, yeah. And, I, well, that's the thing. It's and what I think is beautiful. I mean, it still has a scene where fucking Tim Curry blows Barry Boswick. So yes, which is great. Um, all because it's just. I don't know why, but it's just because only Tim Curry could sell the bit of like popping it on Janet as Brad. And, did you, you know? Uh, well, are you going to do anything with Brad? Why do you think I should? And then, you know, something about Janet. Well, why do you think I should? You know, like, he's, only he could do that. But I think what's great about it is the movie is not, and the, the beauty of the movie is not even just like, there's no attempt to be like, oh, we're going to bring the straights in to understand our lifestyle or anything like that. What it is is that it's a movie that is very specifically a guy, in the case of Richard O'Brien, who loved comic books and sci-fi mm-hmm. and, you know, recognized... What a lot of people do, and we know for a fact, you know, horror and these kind of movies are big in the gay community and the LGBT community because that's what people, you know, people are looking for these elements in there. And he just went, what if I took the elements that we were all searching for? What if I took the moments of representation that we were seeking out and just went, I'm going to put this in the forefront? Yeah. You know, because what do we, you know, what is part of the appeal of the movies like Night of the Living Dead or, you know, Bride of Frankenstein and all that? They're moral panic movies. Mm-hmm. And part of what made people who are on the outside, the people who are the kind of, you know, the freaks of society, if you will, what the appeal is for a lot of that, and we talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 years later, yeah. intentionally or unintentionally does that. Why that Earth. attracts such a such a following is the idea of like, oh, what this is really about is there's a, you know, there's this man and he's trying to get inside you and you have to stop it. And in this case, it's, yeah, well, guess what? Brad and Janet show up at this house and dis- you know have a sexual awakening, mm-hmm. and that and the beauty of it is it's kind of got a man who fell to earth kind of vibe, insofar as Doctor Frankenfurter comes to Earth on a mission. He's an alien with a mission, and instead just gets distracted by the pleasures of the flesh and just living, yeah, and creates this weirdly this this weird family of outcasts. You know, it's it's. And even he's fucking assassinated for being oh too sexually which is, outward. Which is... In, the insanity of this movie is that there is no character development. No. There are no arcs. 
There's nothing other than just being a goof. And yet, when he's singing, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to kill me. I, I do well up. Because it's just like, even though they've done nothing to develop this character or even make him likable, just the dynamic of like, he just wanted to live. It is it's it is kind of that King Kong thing, you know, with the RKO and him climbing yeah. up. Where you're just like, he just, he just wanted to be happy. Yeah. He just wanted to be himself. And, yeah, that's, it's... I have all fuck him. He killed Meatloaf. He did. He did kill Meatloaf. And um, then he, he ate Meatloaf. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's... They had I, some Meatloaf. I... The, the, I've seen this film... I'd seen this film in bits and pieces from very, very young. Um, because of the fact that my mom... Uh, my parents had bought an Alvin and the Chipmunks cassette tape when the X-Files was huge called the A-Files and it was Alvin and the Chipmunks doing songs of like a sci-fi theme right so they you know like Rocket Man by Elton John and Venus and shit like that and one of the songs they did was Time Warp Hmm. and I was just like as a little kid I'm like this song fucking rules you know I was like this is great mom what is this you know I was from this movie and it's not and my mother after being badgered for months and months and months went to Blockbuster rented the tape and fast-forwarded through any of the sexual parts. Which you can imagine means that this movie consisted of... Uh, the song Time Warp. And Meatloaf showing up. Yeah. And that's it for me, for a couple of years. And, about, the, and uh, the opening, the lips. You know, science fiction. about a 20-minute uh, experience yeah. for you. And so I was just like trying to figure out what... The, I couldn't understand what this movie was, but it had this power. Even just from that. Of like, what is this? You know? it's It's... It has that weird feeling of just like a bunch of people got together to have a good time mm-hmm. and to 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 celebrate and to have fun. And there are other movies like that, and there are movies that have that uh, feeling and even that following now. Uh, movies like you can talk about the Adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert, yeah, and other sort of queer cult films mm-hmm. or Chu Wong Fu, yeah, uh, and those do attract like kind of a midnight crowd as well. And you can also talk about movies like The Room. Yeah. Or Birdemic, you know, and the movies that attract people for, like, oh, this is so dumb, like, the stupid stuff that it does. What puts Rocky Horror above all of those in both senses is that Rocky Horror has more to say than a Priscilla or anything like that. Yeah. Because it's a critique on cinema. It's a critique on, like, Eisenhower-era morals. Yeah. But also, it's not bad because the filmmakers are inept. The stuff that's bad is very clearly a guy who grew up on 50s monster movies and is replicating that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's about... It's about. I mean, it's it's very much the same as I sent you that article uh, by... There's an essay by Colson Whitehead. Yeah. Uh, Psychotronic Childhood, which is about growing up with those movies on TV. And, and him... In the essay, it's a great essay. I'm talking about the evolution of going from, like, the Val Luton movies to the Fangoria era and how people came to, you know, you didn't really care about who made, uh, you know, uh, the monster from the deep, but you cared about John Carpenter and you cared about Wes Craven. You cared about those guys. Yeah. This movie, I think is the spinal tap of the horror genre. The way that spinal tap kind of ruined heavy metal mm-hmm. and only maybe guys like Metallica could survive that. Cause everybody else like the, you know, oh, we worship Satan hair metal shit. Spinal tap made that a joke. And when you consider that this came out a year after Texas Chainsaw, mm-hmm. 
and like two, three years shy of Halloween. Yeah. In the horror revolution. And and not only that, and you see that this came in between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, yeah. which is a radical evolution. Yeah. Um, you realize that this was a way to kind of say, if you watched a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and all the people who sat down and went, why don't people want the old movies anymore? You know? Why don't they want, uh, you know, Night of the Crab Monster and shit like that? You know, why do they want these slasher movies? Why do they want these gore movies? Rocky Horror is the answer as to why. And the answer as to why is that by the time you get to the 70s, all of the stuff that was scary in the 50s and 60s, yeah. the ideas of like, well, you might not be a part of respectable society anymore. You know, What if the monster you know, took your gal? Nobody's scared of the creature from the Black Lagoon stealing your girl anymore because at the end of the day, now the counterculture's hit, the sexual revolution's hit. It's kind of fun. Yeah. And that's what's great about, I think, the movies that, you know, like, damn it, Janet, the opening number. Mm-hmm. They're such fucking stiffs. Yeah. And I pointed this out to you before you watched it, but the two of them, Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon, are dressed as the two characters from Night of the Living Dead. Coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah. The characters who are apparently brother and sister, but from the first scene you don't know, uh, which is weird, uh, in Night of the Living Dead. You know, they're talking about going to visit their father. Yes, no, but I'm saying, like, as in part of what makes that bit work to me is that even that like what Richard Bryan's trying to say to some degree is and like when you're going to see a horror movie and you see a good looking guy and a good looking girl in a car mm-hmm. you know it's when we talked to um, uh, David Scow and he talked about you know yeah. the, the, the creature from the black you know, what's he gonna do with them girls like it's the same kind of thing yeah. this well is just, he fucks them and wins an Oscar for it but that's what I'm saying this this is the fr- even Shape of Water I would argue owes some small debt to this for the simple fact that this was the movie that just went, we're going to take the stuff that's below the surface. We're going to take the stuff that guys like James Whale wanted to say and suddenly couldn't. And I'm just going to bring it to the forefront and show you how silly all of this is. And to show you how, by triumphing over the monster in a lot of cases, that's bad. That beating the monster is bad because what you're really doing is you're enforcing a single view. I mean... And I also, there's little things that, even watching it this time, I picked up on, like, when they're driving, and it's a, you don't know what era this movie is at first, right? Because mm-hmm. they're just talking yeah. about, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get married, because you caught the bouquet. We're here in Denton, and it's a wonderful town, and, you know, we're gonna meet with our professor, and this and that. So you would think, based on the clothes, based on everything, the American Gothic characters, that this is a 50s yeah. set piece. But when they're driving, on the radio, you hear Nixon's resignation. Yeah. And it's just like a quick way to tell you, like, no, this is, your world is changing. Yeah. And it's a great metaphor. And, you know, little things like, I, a number that I never liked as a kid, when, like when high school, when I started watching the film for real, yeah. there's a number that I thought was very superfluous. When I, when I was watching it as just a big gay musical, there's a number, I think it's the second, a third number in the movie called There's a Light over at the Frankenstein place. And it's just Brad and Janet singing, like, oh, there's a light. And I'm like, oh, this number sucks. It's not fun. And then watching it as I've gotten older and become more interested in cinema, you kind of realize, oh no, it's the best joke in the movie because it's this very earnest and sincere song about the hope. But you're watching going, you idiots! You're walking to the... Don't go in the big scary house! It's... I don't know. I I, I don't mean to talk too much on this and, and not give you the window to... to, to but that... I, I think that's kind of part of why I picked it too is is that even if you didn't dig it and even if you were on the way... Like, I... I knew that you would see in it 
the things that it frustrates me that a lot of people who love it don't see. Which is... Because, oh, I, I mean, two of the biggest reasons why I don't much love this movie but respect it is, one, I'm not a part... Of, I'm not honest... I'm not in the sexual scale that will confuse everyone's Facebook using Uncle Art. Uh, so I don't have that sort of, oh, I'm finding something that speaks to me thing. So I don't have that sort of, you know, come to Jesus sort of moment that a lot of people had with this movie. Most of whom kind of, like you said, don't get what a lot of the movie's actually saying and just see, ooh, it's big, colorful, gay. Um, and also, for the most part, I'm not that big into musicals, so I'm watching a lot of this and I'm like, aside from Time Warp, I don't like any of these songs. Well, like to the point where when Meatloaf showed up, I was like, "Oh fuck, I wish like Jim Steinman wrote some of these songs." I mean, look, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to jump in here and say that it is uh heresy to not like Time Warp. That's a fact. Yeah. On top of that, close second, if you don't derive any kind of joy from Tim Curry slaying Sweet Transvestite, I mean, it's just it I feel like it, well, that even if you don't do the song itself, just that yeah, he you see him in the from the minute he enters that scene and turns around with that face, that's and that was I believe his first film role. First film, yeah. And you're and you're looking at that and that immediately you're like, oh, this is a fucking star. Yeah, he's like, the, he's he's what makes the movie watchable yeah. to the point that I like. I mean, I'm not a big Susan Sarandon fan in general, but I don't. I she's I didn't like her in this movie. I didn't like Barry Bob. Like, I, it was a thing where, like, I get what they're going for, but I feel like there's... Well, I think that's kind of a... Gets to a big... One of the biggest problems I have with this movie is that it kind of fucking sucks as a movie. Like, Brad and Janet are not characters until, like, an hour Which into is, it. But that's the thing. That's But that's kind of my... So, like, it's like... It's, 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 it kind of takes 50 minutes... Re- I, like, I even looked. I'm like, when it finally got to what we're doing here... Like, I even looked, I, I did the yeah. time look, and I'm like, it's been 50 fucking minutes, and I, we're just now getting to the point. But I feel like that's kind of like, there's no, it's not a plot movie, it's a pastiche. But, the, and but I, that's the, it's, Susan Sarandon might not might not have been the greatest choice for this role, but she might have done better if the first 50 minutes of the movie does more in, to build her as a character, instead of the beginning where they get their little stiffo song, and then... It's just, they get to the fucking castle and it's just forty minutes of super gay Frankenfurter Frankenstein shit. Yeah, and it's just all right. Like I get it. You're very gay. You're making <laughs> you make which one honestly might be my favorite joke of the movie. Your triumph of the will fuck toy. Yep, yep. It took it took you that long to kind of get to this point. But I, I, I'll say this, I, I think, and I, well, it's not going to be a Saranda bash or anything like that, but the one thing I'll say, and it's to the credit of a lot of the other performances, is that everybody else, the reason it works is, it's not a plot movie, it's not really a, you know, it's, it's, it's more a critique than it is an actual film in and of itself. But Bostwick and Curry and everybody else, including Richard O'Brien, who is not only the, the writer of the original show, but is Riff Raff in the movie, yeah, yeah. show up, and like they showed up on set with the minds of like, I know what this movie is. Yeah, they knew what they... they, I, they which is, you're showing up and you're... Like, that, and that's why one of the best parts... And that's another thing that... I guess when I when I get mad at the people who are the biggest fans of this movie, who love this movie, you know, in... I don't want to say the wrong way, but are missing some of the joy of it, is that when you get that scene that is done in, you know, that people yell back at, which is the... 
Rocky, Brad, Dr. Scott, Janet, Brad, Rocky, you know, when they do that, and it yeah. just goes on forever. And there were people who, I remember, like, in high school, we'd watch it, like, it's so dumb, like, they just, like, they need to stop, you know? And, like, that's what's funny, because they think it's bad filmmaking, yeah. when in actuality, it's making the joke of the bad films you would catch on Saturday morning on TV. Like, it's it's very consciously doing those things as a reflection of 50s horror movies. But the part of the problem is that most people who watch this film have not seen those movies. No, they're just Most people who watch from, Rocky Horror haven't seen a Roger Corman movie. They're just coming at it from, I mean, again, it's not wrong to say, no. but like they're coming at it from the sexual awakening part of it. Which is, but it's also the same thing as most people who've seen Airplane now yeah. haven't seen the movies like Zero Hour and haven't seen Airport and haven't there seen There is no movie movies. called Zero Hour. There is just rough assembled <laughs> footage that they shot but, that escaped from the vault. But you know what I mean? Like, Airplane... Still works. It's still a funny movie, but Airplane works so much better when you've seen the Dino De Laurentiis disaster movies yeah. that take I, themselves so seriously. That's kind of what I kind of, I kind of wish Rocky Horror played, not in the joke style, but like played more like Airplane or Young Frankenstein or Shaun of the Dead or Cabin in the Woods. Of you'll get a lot more enjoyment out of these movies if you yeah. know what they're fucking with, but. They still work as movies. Well, what's what's interesting about it is, you know, the one thing I'll say is all the movies you just listed mm-hmm. all came after this. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that to, you know, but because that airplane idea of, like, throw it all against the wall, see what sticks, like, bits, 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 bits. I, I, there wasn't... And the, the thing about this movie that I kind of love and the charm of this movie and the reason why it's successful in the way that it is is that it's not a movie for everybody and it's not a movie for people who... It was never meant to be a movie for people who hadn't seen those movies. Richard O'Brien made a tiny little play specifically for that niche audience of the Fangoria crowd before there was a Fangoria crowd. Mm-hmm. That's all this was for is, hey, are you queer and also like monster movies? This little stupid thing is for you. And it was well received enough that it got a small enough budget to make a movie that tanked. And then people just sort of discovered it. And I find it, as much as I can bitch about the people who don't get the the movie spoofs of it, mm-hmm. and the, the criticism puritanism of it, I do find it endearing that this thing that was made for a very small audience, that was made for a very specific middle of the Venn diagram of horror nerds and, like, theater nerds, has expanded into a global phenomenon. Yeah. It's and and you know, I guess that's kind of for all the criticism I've been. I think that's great that people can come to that and get whatever they need from it. I wish they would get more. Yeah, I wish they would explore a little further. You know, it's it's almost the equivalent of when we talk about the Harry Potter people and say like, I, I'm glad this inspires you. Read another book. Like for Read me, another with, book. Yeah, with Rocky Horror, it's like I'm glad you dig this. You should also check out. Val Luton's movies or James Whale's movies. Yeah. Like, if you dig this, that's awesome. And there are also so many great transgressive horror and genre directors out there. Yeah. But this does, I think, just tie this beautiful bow between... I mean, it, it, it comes at an important time, and it, it's, it's huge for that era. I don't think that you would have a midnight movie market were it not for this film. No. I think, I mean, it's still, it never ended its theatrical run. 
by no. virtue of that. It is still, like, it's the longest-running movie because it has never been pulled from circulation. Yeah. Uh, so when you go to something like a Fantastic Fest, you go to something like, and they have these movies, yeah, some of them are, you know, radically different. But this is the one that kind of shows, like, there is a market for this. And, hey, you guys who like these things, this is for you. I think that's I, I think that's really endearing, and I, I I do like that you evoke Shaun of the Dead things like that because that is also in and of itself like kind of natural descendants of this kind of like or even more so Hot Fuzz because mm-hmm. Hot Fuzz is a movie I didn't like when I first saw it yeah because Hot Fuzz is I would argue a movie that does not work if you haven't seen the movies it's lampooning you know like I was not a big cop movie action movie guy. And I also had not spent any time in the UK or anything like that. So watching Hot Fuzz, I just went, what's so, what's so, f- why? But when you see Bad Boys and you see, like, the movies that it's riffing on, and you also understand the context of, oh, this is, much like Spaced, mm-hmm. a bunch of, you know, middle-class, boring British people trying to live their Hollywood moment, mm-hmm. it's brilliant. I think that it's that same kind of situation, you know? It's the same kind of thing with, with something like... I mean, again, different movies, but same kind of thing with Rocky Horror of, like, you do need to bring something to it. Whatever it is, it's not it's not a movie for everybody. And I, I would never pretend it's a movie for everybody. Again, I put it under the crucial to cinema category rather than... Oh, I don't, you know. I don't think it needs... To, I'm not saying it needs to be for everybody. Yeah. What I'm... Like, I've... I've seen those movies, you know, like I'm, I'm coming from that place of getting yeah. where it's coming from because I don't have the sexual awakening part. So I, but also like I'm 28 years old at this point. I know that's its history and that's what it's yeah. doing, but I still just don't think like as a movie, if you're not a musical person and or, you know, gay, trans, pan, whatever that, you know, whatever spectrum you are, that isn't, you know, cis, I, I, I just, like I, I, I do actually genuinely think this is the kind of thing that would be ripe for, like, a redo. Get someone maybe, like, maybe not him, but in that vein of a Darren Lynn Bousman. Or... Well, she, funny, yeah. Re- I mean... Well, the get ex- somebody that gets the sexual politics of it, gets the horror history moments of it, gets the musicality of it, but gives some arcs to these well, things. Well, that's the thing. And- that's what I wish... Because the frustrating thing, and we're going to touch on it lightly, the frustrating thing is that O'Brien wanted to do a sequel, and he yeah. eventually did. His original idea for a sequel involved Brad and Janet having a baby, mm-hmm. and that baby baby being Frankenfurters or something like that. There's a lot of different ideas. And then he kind of settled on, like, well, what if I did something that was a critique of the 80s, and 80s commercialism, mm-hmm. and television? And that became his new target. And on paper, it's the best thing. Like, on paper, the idea of Okay, the guy who ripped into Eisenhower-era America and that conservatism, you know, and then Nixon era and all that, now this guy is going to take on the Reagan-Thatcher era. He's going to take on television. You know, yeah. Like, it, on paper, it sounds great. The execution is, is awful, in part because the music he writes for it is still, like, 50s rockabilly. Like, you listen to Rocky Art, set aside maybe... Most of the songs, almost all the songs, fit that '50s kind of era, you know, that yeah. very rockabilly vibe. This has the same thing. Whereas, if he had done something very '80s and synthy with the score, maybe it's different. But that the punch never lands on that one. Yeah. 
And I it's it's annoying because I do wish that somebody and you get it to a small degree with something like Scream. I guess Scream is probably the closest I could say that does it. But I do, I agree with you insofar as I don't want somebody to remake Rocky Horror. I want somebody to make another type of Rocky Horror that kind of goes, well, what scares us this time and why? You know, somebody who kind of went and, you know, somebody who looked at the slasher movies and said, well, what if we did that? But with the same kind of Rocky Horror sense of like, but let's expose what this is really about and what the moral panic of it is and how stupid that is. Well, I think... And Scream does that to a degree. Obviously, it's not a musical or anything like that. But see, what I think would be interesting is... in Okay, because in 1990, George Romero and Tom Savini remade Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. And they didn't just redo it and not think anything through. They, like, Romero specifically made it a point, I'm going to update this. Yeah. I mean, and his his whole fucking, like like talking point has been oh I didn't cast it to be a black man I cast it because he was just the best guy for the role yeah kind of bullshit the way the movie ends you don't yeah. end a movie with a fucking lynch mob killing a black guy and throwing him on a fucking fire pyre in 1960s fucking Georgia that's that's a fucking point you make from the jump he took a lot of the criticisms not criticisms but so much as oh time has passed that the depiction of Barbara and some of the sexual politics and racial politics, we can we can update that to our modern time. I don't think I I could, do genuinely kind of think updating that idea of Rocky Horror, the sexual awakening, and sort of the the world you're living in is kind of outdated in a world where trans rights and gay rights are being rolled back, and abortion in Georgia might now be. A, yeah. a death well, I think you would, you would have to do you would have to do for the 80s what Rocky Horror does for the 50s you know you yeah. would have to because Rocky Horror is satirizing a Norman Rockwell fantasy of what the 50s were mm-hmm. where you know it's a bright and bubbly world that just ignores the whole civil rights movement or anything like that yeah. you know and you know like, that's kind of how they choose and with this you would have to do the same thing with the 80s and be like Everything you guys are holding up in the 80s is actually repressive and terrible. Because you can't just do the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but throw in some of today's sensibilities. Fox tried to do that, and it sucks. I don't even mean... No, I but think, I'm, I'm not saying you like, mean that, but I'm saying, like... But there's, like, they've stuff... Shown, we've already seen how to do it the wrong way, but I, mean, I agree with you there's a right way to do it. We're literally living in a time right now all about, let's make America great again. Yeah. I think there's a bit of a power in updating Rocky Horror to be about maybe two fucking MAGA hat wearing assholes who like, or even people that aren't like that, or but just the kind of people, like kind of good Germans yeah. of, oh yeah, like it's not really affecting us and kind of getting thrown into this world. Well, that's the thing, I, I get, I, I guess, I mean, I, I, what I, you're, I, what you're, I think you're getting at is the same thing that I'm kind of getting at, which is the idea of, it's not a matter of somebody going out of their way and saying like, oh, I'm going to intentionally like update Rocky Horror so much as somebody looking at what Rocky Horror did and getting it for what it was and for the social critique of it. Yeah. And saying, how do I do that now? Well because how, if do, you, I, how do I give remaking Rocky Horror but just transplanting the same script in twenty eighteen yeah. or twenty sixteen like they tried to do isn't gonna work because no. yeah, it's a different time. Nixon isn't a thing anymore. Yeah. We're a hundred times worse than 
that's thing, and that's, that's why that's why quite frankly uh the watchman movie came out at the wrong time yeah you which, can make a watchman movie now and you know well they're trying to make know. it a tv show because tv's kind of the only place where you can make yeah <laughs> or but, tour stuff now but but the thing is like that's what i i guess saying like where what we need is somebody who is going to say i and and again it's easier to do that now but at the same time I, nothing will ever be rocky horror again for the fact that now you could make a movie for the outsiders and the you know and the weirdos and all that, but I mean, fish fucker, the movie just won't. But that's picture. the thing. But what I'm saying, like, but if you were making a movie that is going to, you know, you could make a movie for the trans community or the lesbian community or the gay community or the bi community or you know the the you know, whatever. Like, we have now, we have now, even though rights are getting rolled back within the sort of, I guess we can call it the enlightened world, there is a, a stronger sense of identity and, and separate, uh, you know, separate channels. So you can make, uh, you know, that kind of content can be made for much cheaper and people can seek out the kind of content that clicks with them. And you don't just have to rally behind one thing. You know, I, I think that if somebody, if a young queer writer wanted to make a film like Rocky Horror, he could make it, and that would land with specifically the people it's targeted to, which is, you know, queer people who are also horror fans. And that's all the audience it would reach because there's so much more opportunity out there, and I think that as much as we love the idea that there's so much content out there, Mm -hmm. I think it's great, and it, it is great that anybody can make a movie, you know, uh, with the the right Kickstarter or just, you know, with a camera phone. But because there's so much out there that can be so niche, I don't think you're ever going to have something that, or very rarely you're going to have something that becomes that kind of rallying cry in the way that Rocky Horror is, which is like, whoever you are, if you're an outsider, whoever you are, just by virtue of not fitting into the mainstream... You have to see this because you've never seen a movie like this before because this is made for you. This is a movie where, you know, in the way that you went to Frankenstein, you went to the Universal movies and all that because you connected with the monster. Or you went to King Kong because you connected with the monster. Well, here's a movie where you're not the monster for all intents and purposes. You know, I, I think that occasionally you see that small rallying cry. I mean, you got it with... Wonder Woman, but that was appealing to a broader audience, and that's a major studio blockbuster. You have it with something like Black Panther. Very few movies become that kind of cultural zeitgeist, and I think for something like Rocky Horror, something that is intended to reach a very small audience and reaches a much larger one, I don't think something like that, you know, I don't think a film will ever be that kind of phenomenon again. If, uh, when you think back on Rocky Horror Picture Show, what is going to be the first thing that comes to mind? What is it going to be? The f- I mean, it's Tim Curry's first appearance. I yeah, mean, we try that. It's. Yeah. I mean, he's the best thing in the movie. There's. Not, I mean, uh, there's. Uh, he's Tim Curry. He's one of the most eminently watchable fucking actors we've ever had. This is like a shotgun to the face of look at look. I'm here. It may not be. I'm here. I'm queer. Look at me. It's. I'm here. I'm Tim Curry. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm better than all of you motherfuckers. I mean, and let's be real. If he didn't get fucking sick, he should be a much better and dramatic and well-respected actor getting all these sorts of roles um and if people have not seen this this is actually a question i don't know the answer to if people have not seen the rocky horror picture show would you say they're missing out uh 
I think so, in that it's one of the most culturally important movies of all time. Uh, you may find something within yourself within this movie if you're someone... I mean, we, we, we've, we work in a place where there's a lot more fluid sexuality, and this is the sort of thing that's being more accepted now. I mean, it's, it's weird to say accepted when people that are coming out in this way are still getting fucking executed in certain parts of this country because, you know, make America great again. Yeah. Um, it might awaken something in you, or you might be a musical fan and not, like, a f- gender-fluid person. You might be a straight musical fan and find something within it. That, or you just might like Tim fucking Curry and you just go, oh, I like watching this guy. There's a lot of stuff within here that is important for you to watch. I didn't like the movie. I'm not going to watch the movie again, but I think it's something... But you don't regret having seen it. I don't regret it. having watched yeah. it. It wasn't painful. Uh, I just think it's a movie that you can't argue its importance. Thank you for joining us, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, a little throwback to uh, a couple years ago uh, in, the, in the old show. I uh, hope you dug it. Uh, if so, uh, the next time we hit holidays, we'll add more. If you hated it, also let us know, and we just won't make you listen to them anymore. <laughs> Uh, in the meantime, uh, if you are celebrating any winter holiday, uh, please stay safe. Uh, Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Kwanzaa, uh, Winter Solstice, whatever you've got going on this week. Um, just stay safe. Uh, try and connect with loved ones as best you can uh, under these circumstances. Wear a mask, uh, social distance. Um, you know, if, if Santa leaves anything under the tree, make sure to sanitize it beforehand, I guess. Um, and please join us again next week, which is uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, it's, yes, I know, another winter holiday, but we weren't going to have uh, two weeks without new episodes. Uh, I hope you're excited for this one. This was a lot of fun because uh, we're talking about John Huston's classic film noir, Maltese Falcon. And we are joined by actor and comedian David Loveband, who is very kind enough to join us. He is one of the most uh, knowledgeable people on the film noir Uh, that I know and I'm very happy that he joined us for this one so I hope you're excited for that I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it Uh, December 31st David Bloodband is joining us so check back then 